listening to Stop Dog Hamlet, Three Minds Connected, with hosts Dave Steele and Adam Robert. Hello, I'm Adam Robel uh, from Stock Dog Handlers, Three Minds Connected, and sitting down today with my good friend, John Stanton. Come and visit him. Normally a little visit every Christmas. I come back up to Nambucca Valley, which is where I come from, and, and stop in and see John, and thought it would be a good time to have a talk to him, get him down. He's at that age where he doesn't buy green bananas. So make the most of it and yeah, and talk a bit about his life. It's been a very interesting one. So thanks, John. So what was childhood like for you growing up? You're kind of a link between, you know, the old times and these times and seen a lot of change. Well, I have seen a lot of change, but... The big big break in life early days for me was that I sort of grew up at Tamworth and the war was on and my dad went to the war and I spent most of the war years with my grandfather for as much time as I possibly could spend with him. He treated me very, very well. He wasn't hard, but he was pretty thorough. If he didn't do what he asked and do it up to the level of what he wanted, he'd have to do it again. And he wouldn't tolerate rubbish. He was a very experienced old fella, and he kept telling me about different things. He even went so far when I was young to tell me about buying land he always said, never buy land west of the New England Highway because you'll never have any money. You'll have one or two good seasons and then you'll have the next two or three will break you. And he said, you'll have an up and down life financially if you ever buy country west of the New England Highway. I stuck by that. I remember it as though he was talking to me yesterday. And uh, I've had the good fortune that uh, after I left Tamworth, I went on and spent my teenage years, a lot of it, with in the company of Frank Scanlon, who was a great horse and dog man, great. And uh, I learned a little bit off Frank. I learned a lot off Frank, mainly what not to do. He's pretty thorough in whatever he done. So my years at Quindai was travelling rodeos and rabbit trapping for a living. But with no regrets, I look back on that. It's been a great experience. But the experience I hadn't got there was built on the foundation of my grandfather what he handed down to me. That's about where I started and how I started. And I've been very lucky through life. There's no way you can get through life without the help of good people. And if they're prepared to share their experiences with you, that's, that's the college 
that I'm proud that I've been in. It's been great. So your first job was rabbit trapping? I left school and went rabbit trapping because that's where the money was then and you can't get anywhere much without money. Uh, and it, was, it didn't come in big heaps, but it come fairly regular. And uh, I used to rodeo at the weekends. And, of course, growing up with the grandfather like I had, I can remember he used to catch a milking cow and hook her head up at the fence and put my saddle on her and... He'd buck a milking cow and I was only very young and he enjoyed it and I bucked off a lot of them. He used to buck them, get me bucked off and laugh about it. But one day we woke up, they were bucking me off because they were bucking and throwing their heads and they jerked me out of the saddle. And we got to tying the bucking rein into the top of the head collar. No more buck-offs. Trot me up one that can buck. Uh, when we learnt to handle the head collar and had the head collar tied into the top of the head, they, no more did they jerk me out of the saddle. That was another good experience I learned. <laughs> Real early on then, like you say, you were learning from your, your grandfather and Frank Scanlon, they were your mentors, I guess. And was also, did you have an uncle that was a... Oh. a Bill, Bill Stanton. He was a drover? Oh, he was a drover. He's a drover, a horseman and a dogman. I'll repeat, a horseman and a dogman. He, he done things with some of his dogs on the roads, drove and sending dogs distances to block the leader cattle and all that. Yeah. He was a great man at what he was doing. Yep. You've told me a story about him. A uh, guy met him at the... He was coming to the junction somewhere out at Milmore. Oh, yeah, Titanic. And that dog and he gave him back... Well, you uh, can pick which yes, dog I, that to... I was with him one day and a fella come along and said, these cows and calves are at Clark's Creek, which is about three mile away. And uh, old Bill said, I'll send the dog up to block them. And uh, this fella wanted to bet him. And Bill says, yeah, well, I'll bet you. But eventually he didn't take the fellow's money. But he said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a chance. He said, there's four dogs there. Pick the dog you want to send. And when he put his hand on a dog, Bill says, that's another mistake you made. He's the best one I've got. And he was the ugliest too, wasn't he? Yes, he had, <laughs> he had long feet. He'd been tied up a lot as a pup and he had long feet and Oh, he wasn't a good-looking dog, but very, very energetic, and he was a great roving dog, and he'd go big distance to block the leader cattle. I think you've said you didn't, probably didn't quite take enough out of Frank with the dogs. You were too young, or...? Oh, well, or Frank always had good dogs, and I felt I was getting in his road a little bit. And after I left him, I went buying cattle in Sydney, and or for a firm in Sydney, and... I said to Frank one day, I wish Frank I'd taken a bit more notice here training young dogs. Oh, John, he said, you won't have any trouble training dogs. And he walked away just a few paces and turned around and looked back at me and said, I'll tell you one thing that is important. What's that, Frank? Get the right bloody dog to start with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And he had the Kelpies, and you probably stronger Kelpies now, more suited to cattle, but I think back then it was kind of like the Kelpie was just seen as a sheepdog. Is that right? Or Well, now... And then the Collie he, was more for cattle? Or? No, he had a big name with Kelpie dogs. And later on in years, great, great man to me, great mentor, great, great man, Frank Scanlon, and he wouldn't ask you to do anything that he wouldn't do himself. And he did have good sheep dogs. So in later years, I said to him, I wish Frank I'd have got one of your dogs to work on cattle because I was on the coast and always had needed cattle dogs. Oh, Johnny said, I shot the ones that would suit you. He said, we had steep, rough country, and if I sent my dog away, I wanted him to come back with the sheep. But the dog that suits you would probably be a bit aggressive and wouldn't come back with the sheep. He'd end up chewing his ear off in the gully or something like that. My dogs were very reliable up close or a distance. They were very keen, would fetch the stock home, might take a bit longer, but they wouldn't leave one in the gully with the ears chewed off it or anything like that. With my pups, he said, if a pup drew wool at all, I shot him. If he nipped on the nose or probably just grabbed a leg a little bit, he said, I'd put up with that. But he said, I like the dogs to be clean and not to have any bite in them at all. And he said, I shot a lot of dogs that would have suited you. Yeah, right. Looking for a different article. He always looked for what he wanted. He wouldn't put up with anything that wasn't right. And he did have some good horses. Yeah. And he knew how to ride and train a horse. So he's one of the greatest horse and dog men Australia would have ever had. And I've heard you say that you, the, the best dog men you've seen have been best horsemen. Some of the best dogs I've seen... Uh, belonged to horsemen. Blokes riding about in a Toyota with three dogs on the back. They're usually out of position when they're working their stock. And if they get into trouble, they let two dogs go. And then if they're still not out of trouble, they let three dogs go. But the horseman is usually in the right spot, not up on the track or where the vehicle can be. He might be down in the gully or up on a ridge or somewhere. And as far as I'm concerned, I lean towards the horsemen, dogmen, as been the best dogs that I've seen, mainly because the dogs get an assistance from the position that the stockman is in and he's not sitting in a, a, a Toyota somewhere with two or three dogs herding the stock wherever, nilly-willy wherever they're probably heading, but he eventually gets the job done. But the best dogs, most reliable dogs that I've seen in my time belong to fellas riding horses. So you did the rabbit trapping, and then you just mentioned before you went buying cattle. What, how'd that come about? And Well, uh, by accident, I... I had a couple of accidents at rodeos and broken legs and one thing or another. 
and I wasn't walking all that well, and I was offered a job in Sydney driving stock from the trucking yards to the abattoirs, and I went for the interview, and the bloke, the old boss fella said, no, I don't want you for a driver. I was very down when he told me that. I said, I can ride a horse, crack a whip, work a dog, count cattle. What are you looking for in a driver? And he said, I want you for a cattle buyer. I fell off the chair. So I went from a rabbit trapper one week to a cattle buyer the next. <laughs> I was with him six years and it was a great experience. But I left it because every three months I was getting run off the road or something. Done a lot of travelling and I always drove green cars. But in later years, I got a yellow car and the road automatically becomes six foot wider. The traffic could see you. Never owned a green car since. <laughs> And if I'd had a yellow car when I was buying cattle, I'd probably still be buying cattle. <laughs> and the green one just blends in. Yeah. Right. Oh, the green, green cars camouflage, especially on the coast. Yeah. Did that lead on to the stock and station business? Yes. I, I had a family then, and I come to Maxwell and bought into a stock and station business. And, oh, it was not... Too bad, but we ran into a couple of bad seasons and cattle were worth nothing in 1974 uh, or 73, back in the early 70s. You sell a cow for two, $2, $2, no commission. Uh, we looked like starving. And I had a good few horses about me and I stepped up and went to the horses Went back into the rodeo business and I had the first 23 horses that the Stock Horse Society registered. So there's no way that I wasn't in the early days of the Stock Horse Society. And uh, horses treated me good. And uh, oh, I think in about May of 74, I sold eight colts for $5,000 each. I'd never seen $40,000 before. So I went for a trip around the world to try and find where the best horses were to get a sire. And, of course, I found them in America. And uh, I did bring home, eventually, uh, five sires from America. And they helped my horses a lot because the early-day horses had a lot of thoroughbred in them. And when you got them trained up to go to a rodeo, you got there tied up for two or three days and they got fresh, they'd show you what they bred for. <laughs> so I needed uh, needed to put a bit of flesh in my horses and alter their minds a little bit and temperament and that's what the quarter horse did. But it's gone too far now and our horses are getting too bulky. Uh, we've lost our good riding horses. And when we want to improve the horses, we'll have to pick the right type thoroughbred and put a bit of thoroughbred back in the horses to put the confirmation 
and the riding horse that we used to have. I think if we want to get back there, mind you, with the trucks and trailers and one thing or another, there's not many people alive today that's rode past five mile pegs. If they have to go three or four mile in a trailer and get there with their fat horse. So I'm probably talking ahead of time, but it's always a great pleasure to have that good narrow horse to sit on if you want to go riding down the road. And when you say we'll have to put thoroughbred back in them, do you mean more like a stock horse or actually a, a thoroughbred? The type. Like a thoroughbred type stock horse, is that type what To get the narrowness in the rib cage and the place to put the saddle and get the wither, no wither, no horse, and uh, you must have a rein on the horse, you must have a front. Half the pleasure you get out of a horse is looking at him, and uh, if he hasn't got a head and a front on him, it tend to look the other way. But uh, I like a bit of front on the horse, that's my opinion. I stick for it, and I don't care about what other people think much. I just have to satisfy myself when I go shopping for a horse. Yep. Most important thing. Yep. The stock and station business, that's still in the family? Oh. It went to Tom and then to... Well, yes. Uh, I employed a fellow named John Beanie. Terrific, most honest man I ever met, or one of them. And uh, then my son bought in with him. Then he sold it out to his two sons, and of course the price cattle today, uh, it's got very, very big, and they've done very well, and oh, they think they're very smart, but more money in selling a cow today for two thousand odd dollars than it was when we were selling them for two or three dollars. Uh, oh, the tables turned there, and anybody in the real estate business today especially the cattle markets and that, uh, they can't have done anything other than great. Where did you go from, like, so after the stock and station business, where did you go from there? Were you just the horses and and the cattle on the properties? I was always one for a bit of a change. I tried never to walk away and leave something undone or half done. And we still got the auctioneering business. And I've always been involved with Frank Scanlon's son, Tom. And him and I have had some sort of partnership since 1946, uh, even though at one stage he was managing abattoirs in Western Australia. I was involved in a bit of land and we always had some interest between the both of us since 1946 and can honestly say we've never had a word. And we've owned 13 different places, and but it's been nothing but success. But it goes back to my grandfather. Don't go west of the New England Highway. If you're looking for country, make sure you're in rainfall. If you're not in rainfall area, stop looking, go home. If you're in rainfall area, make sure the place is in a good position. You don't want a 20 mile down a back track somewhere because there might come a day that you need or want to sell it. 
And if you're down the back track, nobody will want to buy it. Always buy country in a good position, rainfall, and east of the New England Highway. But there'll be a lot of people argue the point about that, but that's me, that's what I've done in the street as well. It's worked well for you. It's it's an amazing partnership that you wouldn't see that, rarely ever see that, the partnership that you and Tom Scanlon have had, and now you're both retired here on the river and and partnership still. Well, he was a drover and I'm a rabbit trapper. The place we sold last May, we were offered and did take $8 million for it. So it's a bit of a rise from where we started and we weren't overburdened with education, I can guarantee you. There's no college leave passes in our education. (laughs) In between all that, you were pretty big in the polo cross too. Well, I started the club at Maxwell. I don't want to talk about it too much because I was only just a player, but we had some good horses and I owned most of the horses. But we didn't have any good players, but we had a bloody good team. And they played for the team, not for each other. And there's a few things we stuck to in Polo Cross that helped us. Every time somebody passed the ball, if it wasn't caught by one of our players, the player got the blame. It made them very careful at passing the ball. And possession so important in Polo Cross, they ain't going to score if you've got the ball. And if you can hang on to the ball and hold the ball, you're going to beat most of them. And I hesitate a little bit to say this, but it's true. The last three years we played Polo Cross, we beat every team by at least 10 goals. And that ain't no bullshit. But we did have a good team. No outstanding players. But they like possession of the ball. And while you'll get the ball, they're not scoring. Yeah. But we did have some good ponies. <laughs> and they all, all the horses stayed here, didn't they? they all the horses life. come out of my stable. And I'm not saying that I fed them, but I owned most of them. And... Uh, they weren't all horses I bred. We got some thoroughbred horses for a bit of pace. But there's something comes into the polo cross horse, comes into your dogs, comes into your cattle horses. You're riding a motorbike or driving a car. The stop is very important. Your dog, if he won't stop when you want him, he's going to cause you trouble. Your polo cross horse won't stop when you want him, he's going to call you trouble. And you're going down the road on your car and you put your foot on the brake and it don't stop, you're in trouble again. It don't matter what you got, the stop is very important. The stop under control in everything you're driving, riding, the brakes are so important in my view. You had that success with the polo cross. Were you camp drafting at the same time or you or you just, in the polo cross years, you didn't draft? Or, oh, well, now, that camp drafting's a long story. I don't know whether you've got time for that. <laughs> but I can honestly say 
There's a cupboard there that you can look at that's got five bridles hanging in it. And those five bridles that you're looking at belong to five horses that won ABC Array Horse of the Year 11 times. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. That's enough about the camp drafting. There's some good ponies there. And I've seen your your room in the house, so the trophy room, it's a, it's a whole room. It's Which room this, are you talking about? The, well, not the, not the dining room, but the actual separate trophy room. And, and it has to be seen to... Yeah, well... It really yeah. has to be seen. It's a whole room full of saddles and bridles and whips and trophies, which is... Yeah, I won 17 saddles. Yeah, that's a good achievement, a big achievement. It is an achievement, I suppose. A lot of miles and a lot of luck. Yep. We are talking earlier about the, the yellow dogs and, and that old story. Do you want to tell that? Well, the, it's and true and to you. Well, Jolly is a name that dog people know, and it's still there in a lot of the pedigrees and, and quite well known. So, Well, Jeff Jolly, he was a well-known dog trainer in Victoria. The Jolly name, and I was good friends with Jeff. Jeff had good dogs and he won a lot of trials, a lot of respect in the dog world. But it so be that I gave Richard Kinnan a yellow pup, young dog he was, and he went to Queensland where Richard Kinnan lived. The dog's name was Jolly. And the dog had such a good reputation up there that the Queensland breeders got amongst the Victorian fellows and wanted to know what the breeding would be of the Jeff Jolly yellow dogs. Well, the yellow in my dogs come from Potter because old man Potter, the Potters were very, very, very good dog people. They come from Texas. And old man Potter put a Labrador through his dogs to put a bit of brains in them, which was very successful. He was a good hand and he had good dogs, but he had the right material to work on. And I was lucky enough to get some of his dogs. And I had a dog called Tim, and every litter he had had a yellow pup in him. And the yellow dog in Queensland that come from here, called Jolly. He was a potter-bred dog uh, originally, uh, run back to a bit of Labrador, and Richard Kinnan had him, and because of Jeff Jolly in, in Victoria, everybody's starting to think that the yellow dogs come from Victoria, but they didn't. They come from Texas. An old man potter-bred them, and the yellow come out of the uh, Labrador dogs, and I was lucky enough to meet him and get some dogs off him, and that's where some of the best dogs I had come from there. Yeah. He was doing the cattle leading at, at the show, and and then he went in the in the sheep trial. Well, that's but- another story. He was out at Winton, and he had stud bulls, and he's leading them at the show, and he had Jolly with him, and there's a sheep dog trial on, and this dog never worked sheep. But they were losing these weathers and they never got to the pen. Anyhow, he takes Jolly over and he, when he got to the pen, 
he didn't know nothing about it too much, and the sand around the front of the pen was not a mark on it. And while he was leading the bulls, he hadn't seen the trial, and he uh, he thought the judge must look at how accurate you walk the sheep into the pen. So he said, I'd be very careful, and I held John Jolly back off him a bit and put him straight in over the sand. He said, no. Car horns are blowing and people are clapping because he is the only dog that penned his sheep. <laughs> so he learned a little bit from that. But uh, a great person, a great person. Um, I've had a lot of young people come here and stay at my place and there was very few that was interesting and there was a stock-minded and had the talent of Richard Kinnan, very few. Yeah. I could tell some stories about some apprentices I had here, but uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll leave that out of it because it was a lot of fun and all good people or they never got here, but some of them just didn't have the touch. They had, had the desire but didn't have what it took to go with it to be successful but I'm not criticising or knocking anybody down. The world's got to be like that, otherwise we'd have probably all turned out to be blacksmiths or bakers or something. <laughs> You've got to have a variety. Yeah, that's right. And you said Tim, he's another well-known dog, and is he potter bread yes. as well? Yeah. He, he, he is a potter bread. Ben Potter sold him to me, and after I had him a week or two, He's only a young dog. Ben, what did you sell that dog to me for? What was wrong with him? He said, he wouldn't cast. And I said, how far do you want him to cast? He said, from mountain top to mountain top. <laughs> I said, I'm glad the mountains are not as far apart down here as what they are up at your place, because I've got no trouble. But Ben used to throw stones at his dogs, and he is a good shot with a stone. And he must have clobbered this dog a few times and he wouldn't go, fear he might get a stone in his ribs. Yeah. But I never I never sent the dog anywhere that he didn't get there. He was a very, very honest dog and he could kick with either foot, I'll tell you. It didn't matter what you were doing. Another well-known dog was Buckle. What can you tell well, us about him? Well, he is a good a good dog. I could tell a lot of things about Buckle, but we'll be here all day. But eventually, I gave him to Mickey Davis, and Mickey went took him to Queensland. I gave him to Mick because I knew Mick for a lot of years, and he's battling about. And a bullock had jumped on Buckle and squashed his chest, and he used to bleed a bit sometimes. So I was out at Inverell, and Mick was there with these dogs doing tricks at the show, working a few ducks and one thing or another, but he didn't have a dog. So I felt sorry for him, I gave him Buckle. Well, he went big time then, and I must say this, I've got a photo of Buckle in my truck, and I was up at West Point at Peter Kaminsky's place, weaning cattle, and a cattle buyer came out and he's having lunch with us. And he looked up and saw 
the fighter buckle. He said, that's that dog, Mick. Ed? And I said, yeah, of course I gave him to Mickey Davis. He said, yeah, I was in a trial one time and I was out in front and thought I had it won. Mick come out and buckled and took it off me and he said, there's the dog sitting up there in your lorry. I said, I broke him in and I gave him to Mick. And I said, he's supposed to give me back some pups, but I never got any. <laughs> but Mick's not here anymore, poor fella. And uh, was a good cowboy, Mick. And Buckle probably made him a good dog man. All right. Well, thanks a lot for your time and appreciate it. And it's good to get, you know. Well, I haven't taken up too much of your time, but anyhow, my time is pretty much spare these days. <laughs> and uh, I'm not looking to get overworked from here on in. Good. Uh, I'm just going to play with the dog or two and I. I've got a couple of horses I'm riding. Uh, I want to get a couple of nice, light-feeling horses to ride. Yep. And uh, I'll be camped here for the rest of my days. I'm not going to leave Maxwell. No, it's a good spot. Yes. No, much appreciated. Thank you. All right. Uh, remember, start where you are, use what you've got, and do what you can. Do what you can. And... I've seen in my time a lot of success has been built on failure. That's a good note to finish on. Thank you. You've been listening to Stop Dog Handlers, Three Minds Connected. To get in touch, email us at stopdoghandlerspodcast at gmail.com.